I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm really glad you're here. <laughs> okay. We're talking about ultimate freedom. Ultimate freedom. Pesach. Passover. And uh, some of the impediments and, 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 a, and a strategy to, to, really, to, really, to really get there in the, in the fullest way. So I'm going to use a fancy word, um, psycho-spiritual dynamics. But I think it's actually earned. I think it's, I think it's valid because we're talking about getting the heart and the mind together. And this is one of the great goals of, of Judaism. And, um, you know, one of the famous things, a lot of people wonder, there's a sort of a great curiosity why, we, why certain Jews uh, grow out their payas, right? What, what's, what's that whole deal? And those are the forelocks, the side locks that, that Hasidim grow, grow down, you know? And my Rebbe explained that that's the connection between the heart and the mind. And you don't want to cut, you don't want to sever this connection between the heart and the mind. And by the way, just in terms of the, the letter of Jewish law, as long as it's below the cheekbone, that's, that's considered payas. In other words, they don't have to be fully grown out. Um, but uh, some people do that just to, to really enhance the beauty of this concept of connecting the heart and the mind. So this is just one illustration of, you see, the, the great value of this. And to go deeper, um, perhaps on a psychological level, but something that is a key to really understanding our own, our own uh, human condition, is that, is that the mind thinks one thing and the heart feels another thing. And you can understand something intellectually, but if this understanding is not in your heart, then it won't be real for you. And put another way, the, the mind has one vote and the heart has two votes. So the heart is going to win in every election. And, and that's the way it is. And so sometimes we, we go through life and we, we, we wrestle with ourselves because we feel as though we know better. And on some level, we do know better. But the problem is, is that our, our knowledge is stuck in our head and it hasn't saturated our heart. So why is that exactly? Why is there this disconnect? So I want to, I want to talk about it a little bit. And basically, I'll tell you, just we, we won't go into it too much, but this disconnect happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge. That's, that's, that's in terms of human history. That's where the heart and the mind became separated. Just so everyone should know. That's the, that's the ultimate source of it. Um, but, so a person has to learn how to open up their heart. And this condition of a closed heart is, is something that we, that we live with. And kind of the most famous Torah, I think, is from the Kutzka Rebbe who says the following, if you look in, in the, the Shema, the, the, the paragraph after the Shema, the Viahafta, Hashem says, you know, commands us to love Him. And by the way, that's, that's very striking, because the very first word after our declaration of the oneness of God is that it's got to be based on love. So the entire system of all the 613 mitzvot and everything like that, you can see God is telling us Himself, that the whole thing, if it's going to work, has to be based on love. 
You know, you can't. So then there's a whole debate, by the way, among all the rabbis. Can you command someone to love? So seemingly yes, because God is commanding us to love him, right? So, so that, that sort of short circuits the entire back and forth right there. But yes, the answer is yes. But, so then the question is how? How do you get someone to love? So you have to open up their heart. That's the answer. You have to open up someone's heart. Now listen to what the Kutzke Rebbe says. In this paragraph of the Via Hafta, it says, you should put these words of mine, God is speaking, on your heart. So, he asks a wonderful question. What does it mean, on your heart? It should say, in your heart. Put these words of mine in your heart. But it doesn't say that. It says, put these words of mine on your heart. So the Katskarebi says that the reason is because, let's face it, how often is your heart actually open? The reality is it's usually closed. So God is telling you, put these words of mine on your heart, so that in those moments, those precious moments when your heart actually opens, the words will be there to fall right in. So, it's a beautiful teaching, but what we're getting at on a deeper level right now is just that the default setting, if you will, of a, of a human being is a closed heart. That, that, that's what we're hearing from this. That this is how people naturally walk around. And that our job is actually to, to open our hearts. So, there's a teaching that the... I heard from Rabbi Shlomon the name of the Ishvitzer Rebbe. We usually say it in the time of Elul. Elul comes right before... That's the month that comes right before Rosh Hashanah. When everyone's really doing all sorts of spiritual work on themselves. And the Ishvitzer Rebbe says, what is the work of Elul? So, so, amazingly, he says, a person has to fix everything they're doing right. So you say, wait a second, what does that mean? Everything you're doing right. Right? And he goes on to say, this thing that you're doing, that you're doing anyway, you're doing it, but are you doing it with all of your heart? See, it's a brilliant teaching. And a brilliant strategy. Because the truth is, is that if you're doing it anyway, if you can really just do it with all of your heart, then that will empower you and give you strength to then, you see, success leads to other success. So then you'll go and you'll be able to conquer other challenges. That might be very difficult for you. So, so start with what you're doing right, but do it with all of your heart. And if you do that, this is going to open up your heart. Now, I want to go further into this, because the condition I told you really began in the Garden of Eden, when we, when we went against God's will, and we ate from the tree of knowledge. So, here was the first separation of the heart and the mind. And God promises us, and the way it's delivered is in a very intriguing way in the Torah. We get a commandment or a promise in two different ways, both relating to the same thing in the Torah, which is God tells us that we have to circumcise our hearts. So what, what does that mean exactly? 
So it's, it's not completely clear what that means, whether this is talking on a spiritual level or on a physical level. Seemingly it's a spiritual idea, but it's a concrete spiritual idea. So it's phrased in, 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 in the language of um, physicality. Because what does it mean to circumcise your heart? So we know when a, 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 a young boy gets a circumcision, what we're talking about is that a, a male is born with an extra piece of skin, and that piece of skin has to be taken off. That's done on the eighth day. That's an awesome thing. And the idea of circumcision, you know, we have a tradition that Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, attends every bris. So why? Like, what's the connection there? So I heard from Rabbi Wolfson something, when you hear it, you'll understand the truth of it immediately. The circumcision is done, the bris is done on the eighth day. Eight in Torah correlates with the Messianic era. Because seven is the natural order of the world. Eight is Lamala Minateva, means above nature. So eight is already hinting at the world to come. So the bris happens on the eighth day. So, so, so what happens with the bris? You're cutting away materiality and, and you, reveal, you reveal something extra. Actually, if you want to get a little bit more graphic about it, but the, the rabbis talk about it, you reveal the crown, actually. Physically speaking, the way a, a man is shaped is there's a crown on top. And it's, called, it's actually called an ateris, which means a crown. So what happens is, is that you have a parallel here with really the history of world civilization, where we're heading. Materiality is cut away. This veil of physicality is cut away. And the crown, so to speak, godliness, is revealed. And this is done on the eighth day, which correlates with the arrival of Mashiach. And who's the one who announces the Messiah? Eliyahu. So what you have at a bris is a miniature reenactment, basically, of, of, of the redemption of the world. But even more striking, and this is going to get back to the whole notion of the heart, is, is the idea that, that God is, is giving us a snapshot of what the nature of reality is for us right now and what our job is right now. In other words, God who creates a human being with all of the different parts, exceedingly complex, exceedingly complex. Are you going to tell me that God, it was either too hard for God to get rid of this tiny little flap of skin or that he was too busy? I mean, there's no, there's no possible explanation why, why God didn't do it other than the fact that he wanted us to do it. Do you understand? He left a job for us. He did 99.9% of the job, and he asks us, you complete the job. We're partners together in creation, in finishing creation. It's a covenant. It's both sides. Together we'll do it together. So, So you see the intentionality of the idea that creation itself is not complete until we do the job that God gives us to do. This is the whole concept of a bris. So it's so central in terms of understanding Jewish thought in general. 
that our job is to do our job, if you will. Okay. So now let's get back to the heart. Because that, that mitzvah is actually done on a man. Although, interestingly, according to Jewish law, only someone who has been circumcised is allowed to perform a circumcision. And according to Jewish law, a woman is able to do a circumcision. So, halakhically speaking, according to Jewish thought, a woman has the status of being circumcised. So, a man is not born that way, but a woman is born that way. So, this is a a spiritual idea, but nonetheless, it's good to know that that women, you know, when we talk about women being more spiritual than men, and the, the, uh, the best example of that is that, you know, you see a, a progression in terms of creation of lower life forms are created, and then increasingly higher life forms are created. If you look at the chronicle of creation in the beginning of Breshis in Genesis, and then you have man is created, and then woman is created. So from, evo- from an evolutionary standpoint, you see here that woman is a more evolved species than man. And so the idea that a woman is born without having to actually do the cutting, that she's in this state already, is is another illustration of this. In fact, you know, a lot of times, because, you see, people, people are very much influenced by the society that we live in. And we live in a, a democratic society. So we want equal rights. And so there are women who are very well-intentioned, but they, they think equal rights. And, you know, on a, on a secular, you know, socioeconomic platform, they're absolutely right. There's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of the Torah philosophy, there's a misapplication where some women will say, how come I don't have that mitzvah? Here you see, that's proof that this is a misogynist theology. Right? Like, why shouldn't I have to do that? And yet the reality is, is that you see that the nature of a a man and the nature of a woman are very similar, but at the same time they're not exactly the same. And so different fixings are needed depending on who we're dealing with. And so it's a little bit like if a woman were to complain, why don't I have to put on tefillin every day? It's a little bit without making a joke out of it, I'm I'm being serious, it's like saying, why don't I need to take anti-cholesterol medicine? I want to take Lipitor. How come you only get to take Lipitor? You know, it doesn't make sense, because the mitzvahs, in addition to being extreme privileges, right, at the same time, they're soul fixings. And if the soul fixing isn't required, then it's not necessary. By the way, if you should know, if a woman wants to put on tefillin, she can put on tefillin. But the, it's not, she absolutely doesn't have to do it. And if she wants to do it, she should do it in private. Because there's a notion that um, a man shouldn't wear woman's clothes and a woman shouldn't wear man's clothes. And because tefillin is considered on some level a male garment, if a woman wants to do it, she's permitted to do it, but she should just do it in a sneeze place. In a, in, a, in a modest, private place. But, but uh, they, they're, certain el- they're certainly eligible to do it. Um, okay. But what I'm getting back to is this notion of, of, of performing this, this bris 
this circumcision of the heart. Because this is on men and women both. All of us have this commandment to circumcise our hearts. Now I told you that it's phrased in two different ways in the Chumash, in the, in the five books. One time God says, circumcise your heart. He commands us to do it. And then later on in the Torah, and this is, if you want to see it, it's um, in Parshas Nitzavim, in chapter 29, verse 6, it says, Hashem your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love Hashem your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. So that's an amazing thing. God is saying, you know what? First he commands us to do it, and then later on he says, I'm going to do it. So, and, and here you see that when, when we're able to circumcise our hearts, God says, circumcise the heart and the heart of your offspring to love Hashem your God with all of your heart. So in other words, this is the consummate realization of the open heart, of attaining an open heart. So, what I'd like to suggest right now, and this is going to correlate with the messianic era, with the ultimate fixing of a human being of, and of the world. What, what I want everyone to understand is, is that there is this blockage on our hearts that everyone has, that all of humanity has, at this stage in our spiritual development. We live with this. It's not always going to be this way, though. But this is, this is the human condition right now. So if you say to someone, how come your mind and your heart aren't connecting? Well, to a certain extent, we can get that together. To a certain extent, we can get that together. Because God says to us, circumcise your heart. Which means, He wouldn't tell us to do it unless we were capable of doing it. On the other hand, though, God says, in the end, I'm going to do it. So here you see that it's not such a simple thing. If God Himself says, I'm going to do it in the end. So, so seemingly, we have the capacity to do it. But we have to understand, again, the default setting that a human being is born into this world with is this closed heart. Is this orla on our hearts. So let me get into that word a little bit. And then I'm going to talk about a little bit more what it means to have a closed heart. And with a fascinating Gomorrah about hearts. Okay? And mice, by the way. So we're going to get to that in a moment. Okay? But anyway... Listen to this. This piece of skin, which, which a man cuts away, that's called the orla. That's the Hebrew word for it, an orla. And the blockage on our heart is also called an orla. Okay? Now, what I think is interesting is the following. I was just thinking about it a little bit, you know? There's another place in Halakha where you see this word orla. And that is on a tree, on a fruit tree. So Jewish law says the following. If you plant a fruit tree, the first three years of fruit, you can eat. It's just what it is. But then, all subsequent fruit after that, you can eat. That's, that's the Halakha. And the first... Three years of fruit is called orla. So you say you can't eat orla. Okay. So what I see there is a, 
to me anyway, a fascinating little hint that just like that's called Orla, but it's only for three years. In other words, this Orla is a temporary status. So too, the Orla on our heart is also a temporary status. That it's not going to last forever. That's an observation. All right. Now, listen to this. There's a Gomorrah in Mesechta Harayas. Okay, you don't, you don't hear that Mesechta quoted too often. <laughs> it's one of the smaller volumes of the Gomorrah. And it's on uh, page 13a. Okay? If you, if you want to look it up. And, and, and also on B. So, so they ask a fascinating question. And I love the fact that this question is being asked like 2,000 years ago. Which is, how come dogs recognize their owners and they're friendlier to their owners than cats? <laughs> so have you ever, you know, there are a lot of cat lovers and dog lovers and they debate with each other. This has been going on for thousands of years, this, this, uh, this question. But the, the answer that they give will be very surprising to you. Okay, so, so we're going into the Gomorrah here. And this is the answer from the disciples of Rebelazar ben Sadok. Okay? And he says the following. There are certain foods, certain things that cause forgetfulness. Alright? One of the things that causes forgetfulness is if you eat something that a mouse has, has eaten. So, like if you come into contact with that. Now, if Therefore, if you eat something that a mouse has nibbled on, and that causes forgetfulness, how much more so, if you eat an actual mouse, will that induce forgetfulness? Right? So that's, that's called a, a kavachomer, right? So, so, so that's why cats don't recognize their owners, they're not as friendly to their owners, because they forget about who their owner is. An amazing, an amazing spiritual kind of like x-ray into the soul of a cat. Okay, or I don't know whether soul is the right word to use there, but anyway. So, so now listen to this though. They go into, on the next page, more explanations of what causes forgetfulness. And one of the things is, if you eat the heart of an animal, all right? Now, you should know that um, in terms of the laws of kashus, keeping kosher, if you kosher slaughter an animal, right, let's say a cow, for instance, all the meat in the cow is kosher. It's not a problem. So if you want to eat the heart of the cow, in terms of kashus, there's no problem. Now, Ashkenazim, Ashkenazi Jews have a custom not to eat the heart of animals, Sephardim do. So, so even today, it's, it's among certain sectors of the Torah-observant religious community. It's not, it's not an issue. It's not a problem. However, it does say so, right here in the Gomorrah, that one of the things that causes forgetfulness is that if you eat the heart of an animal. Now, believe it or not, I studied... In the Shulchan Aruch, the laws of eating heart meat. (laughs) 
just one of the things that, one of the topics that you have in terms of, if you want to learn the laws of kashras, especially salting meat and things like that. And fascinatingly, one of the commentators says that among those people who do eat heart meat, right? Now, of course, we're talking about animals here, right? Kosher animals. Um, that, that the exterior of the heart, and we're talking about an actual animal heart now, right now. The exterior of the heart you shouldn't eat. The orla of the heart, right? This, this barrier of the heart that we've been discussing, you shouldn't eat because there are negative spiritual consequences that will come with that. So now, let's put all of these thoughts together. Okay? And I'd like to try to suggest why it is that, that there's a barrier between the heart and the mind. Or what the nature of that barrier between the heart and the mind is. Perhaps, based on what we're saying, it's the barrier of forgetfulness. In other words, the mind knows and the heart quickly forgets. Right? Have you ever heard the expression, absence makes the heart grow wander? Go wander? Grow fonder. Well, you know, you hear it two ways. <laughs> absence makes the heart grow fonder. That's, that's one way. Or absence makes the heart go wander. <laughs> hmm. there, there are two versions of that. Two versions. And I'm sure they're both true, by the way. I'm sure they're both true. But, let's go further with this thought. One of the best ways of increasing your love for God, or your love for another human being, by the way, is through gratitude. Right? They've actually done studies on this. And they say, the best thing that you can do is gratitude. Because the problem is, is that we, we have so much that we're constantly forgetting what it is that we have. Put another way, I don't like this phrase so much because it seems too much like a cliché. We're taking everything for granted. Meaning to say that we're, we're constantly forgetting all of the things that we actually have been blessed with. And what gratitude does is by, by thanking and acknowledging, what you do is you force yourself or you cause yourself to remember all the things that you have. You see, so, so you see that there's a very causal, essential link between the heart, the heart not appreciating, the, the heart not receiving, and forgetfulness. Because the heart forgets. The heart forgets what it is that we have. It's almost like this... It, it sounds like there has to have been some poem, The Forgetful Heart, right? Doesn't that sound like that's been out there? But there's something, there's something to it. There's like this cloak of forgetfulness that surrounds the heart. And unless we regularly remind ourselves of what it is that we have, the heart continues to forget. So, so we're heading toward a place. We're heading toward a place where that's not going to happen. And if you want to work on getting your heart and your mind together, because again, I'm, I'm laying down a foundation here that I think is very important, which is this essential disconnect between the mind and the heart that we're all born into. And that the heart has one 
The, the brain has one vote and the heart has two votes. So no matter what you think, it almost doesn't matter what you think because what you feel is going to govern your actions. So the battleground for closeness has to be the emotions, has to be the heart. It has to be. And if you want to make progress in that field, it has to be with gratitude. Because gratitude will cause you to remember. And the nature of the heart is to forget. So, so all of this is being tied in with, with liberation and freedom in Pesach. And I want to just talk about Pesach a little bit more directly right now. But the reality is, you know, that, that all of these things have to be proactively worked on by us. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. And somehow that seems to me so obvious. And yet, I think for the average person, it's so not obvious. They think that somehow if you hear these things, the hearing itself is the fixing. And what I'm telling you is, the hearing of these things is not the fixing. (laughs) The doing is the fixing. The hearing is not the fixing. I hope that you take that to your heart and understand what I'm saying. Because what else are we doing in this world? Everybody wants to give you the measure of how you can measure your success in this world. But, you know, I heard Reb Shlomo say that after 120, God is not going to ask you if you read the New York Times every day. You know, there are a certain ultimate existential list of questions that we have to basically answer for ourselves. You know? And one of them is, is this. Did, did we do the work? Um, so, so let me just transition to Pesach right now. So just, everyone should know, Pesach is this Friday night. And, uh, I just want to say one thing about Shabbos Haggadol. Oh, by the way, let me just say one last thing about mice. <laughs> so, so, if mice cause forgetfulness, right? Remember, it says if you eat something that a mouse ate, it causes forgetfulness. How much more so if you eat a mouse that will really cause forgetfulness, like a cat does. That's why it doesn't recognize its owner. So, from this, the Gomorrah takes a very very strong stand about the nature of mice. It says that their nature is quintessentially evil. You may not have known, I certainly didn't, that we had such a strong opinion about mice. (laughs) You know, I thought, you know, a snake, we know, like, we're not so into snakes, you know, especially in terms of our whole philosophy. But, you know, it, it would appear that the that when the snake drives the car, the mouse is in the shotgun seat, you know? It's sort of like the, it's sort of like if you, if you wanted to sort of have like your, your team of supervillains, right? You'd, you'd have like your, the, the, the mouse would be number two, you know, assisting the snake. 
Because the mouse is, I guess, the headquarters of forgetfulness. You know? So, anyway, just, uh, just an interesting, odd bit of knowledge there, you know, about mice. So, anyway, that aside. By the way, we have a mitzvah, you should know. It's called Tzor Chaim, where you're not allowed to be cruel to animals. And that, and that even before you pray, you have to go and feed your animals, even before you pray. So we're very into, from the very beginning, animals, feelings and safety and, and, and compassion. So this doesn't mean, God forbid, you should be mean to a mouse. <laughs> but, but nonetheless, in, in Torah thought, there's a, it has a certain status, a mouse. Oh, okay, so now let's get back to Pesach. You know, mice figure into Pesach, by the way. I don't know if you know that. Because chametz, this will give us a whole different appreciation of this teaching about chametz. Chametz is, everyone knows, is leavened bread, which we have to get rid of. And one of the things that we're supposed to search for, listen to this. One of the things that we're supposed to search for, um, and it's going to be Thursday night this year, and there's a once a year blessing that we make. There's only a, a handful of blessings that you only make once a year. One of them will be this Thursday night. You have to get rid of all the chametz from your house. Very, very important. That's bread, oatmeal, cookies, crackers, pretzels. Check your car, knapsacks, suitcases, your freezer, vacuum bags. You know, you can't just get rid of it all. And then after you've gotten rid of it all, you close out the lights in your house and you do something really cool because you then take, the custom is to take 10 pieces of bread. Now, theoretically, at this point, as far as you know, all the bread's out of your house, okay? All the chametz is out of your house. You take 10 pieces of bread and you have to be real careful not to make crumbs when you do this process. Put them into 10 Ziploc bags, okay? And then have someone put them around the house. Now, it's very important you don't hide them too well. <laughs> That's not the purpose of this, of, this, of this exercise. And in fact, it's a famous question in Halakha, what if I hid the chumet so well I can't find it, right? So you don't want to be... That happened to me one year. You don't want to be one of the people who asks that question. You just put them around the house. You don't have to hide them. And then you light a candle. Okay? We're going to get back to the mass in a moment, by the way. You, you, you light a candle and you say the following thing. Blessed are you, Hashem, right? Hashem who has sanctified us with his commandments, and has commanded us concerning the removal of chametz, that's leavened bread, okay? Now, the reason why you're putting, one of the reasons on the most practical level, that we have this custom to put out chametz in, in a very controlled way in these bags, or whatever it is, is because we don't want to make a, what's called a bracha levatala. If, in our minds, we've already gotten rid of all the chametz, then for us to now make a blessing after the fact, who's commanded us to get rid of all the chametz, if there's no chametz there, then we've made an empty blessing. But since now there is, in a very controlled way, chametz there, it's not a bracha levatala, it's not an empty blessing. Okay, that's on the most strict practical level. But there's a very, very deep idea going on on a spiritual level, which is basically, you see, matzah, you should know, is the realest thing in the world. In Torah thought, there's nothing realer than matzah. Matzah is just 
bread, I mean, it's rather, matzah is just flour and, and, and water. That's all it is. And it doesn't pretend to be anything that it's not. It is only what it is. It's the realest thing in the world, really, honestly. And there are tremendous spiritual benefits that come from eating it. You, it just like straightens you out and it rectifies you and it's just, it's awesome. It's like the holiest spiritual medicine that you can have is matzah. Especially Pesach night when you've been commanded to eat it, okay? By the way, the real matzah eating, you have to know, you have to eat, is, is just Pesach night. All during Passover, you, you're absolutely forbidden from eating bread. And everyone should know, that's, that's like eating on Yom Kippur. It's an Isser Karas, what we say. It's, it's, it's your, a person's soul, God forbid, gets cut off. So the, the, the prohibition of eating bread during the eight days of Pesach is extreme. Okay? But the actual obligation to eat matzah is only the first night of matzah. Is only the first night of Pesach. Or the second night, the two seders. So in other words, it's good to eat matzah during during Passover, and it's, a, it's, you know, but you're not specifically commanded to eat it over the course of Pesach, okay? So what I'm trying to tell you is the primary time of eating matzah, the primary time of the spiritual benefit of matzah is at the Seder. So make the most of that in terms of your, your, your concentration. You know, one of my favorite memories of my life is sitting at a Seder with Reb Shlomo Karlovach, and there was a person, I won't say their name, but very wonderful person, just, and I, to this day, I, I, I see her face eating matzah and tears rolling down her face, you know, just, it was so holy, you know, anyway, everyone should also know when you drink the four cups of wine and you eat the matzah, you have to lean to the left, and there's a great, very practical uh, bit of advice that I got, which is that you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable to lean to the left because you're kind of feeling like you're falling off a chair. So move the chair like this to the side, and then when you lean to the left, it's nice and comfortable. Okay? That's a good, very simple bit of advice, but that will actually improve your Seder. Okay? You just have now a nice backing there. So, and why are we leaning to the left? So it's very deep, and I haven't got a good answer for you. But the very simple answer is just that it's a sign of freedom, that you can relax and lounge while you're eating, you know? But why the left and not the right? Okay, for another year. <laughs> so, so anyway, let's get back to this idea that you're taking the ten bits of chametz that someone puts around the house. You make this blessing. Again, this is such a beautiful blessing because it's once a year. And once you make this blessing, you shouldn't engage in conversation that's not related to cleaning to the house for Pesach. Okay, you want to stay focused on, right now I'm getting rid of the final bits of chametz. So you light a candle, and the idea is, these ten bits of chametz symbolize, correlate with the ten spherot, and basically you're liberating the entire world of evil. That's the idea. You're cleaning out the entire cosmos of evil. It's an incredible, an incredible thing. Not only that, but if you've seen, like, there's lots of charts and things like that, these ten spherot also exist within a person. And that, that makes sense because we've got many, many examples where, remember, the Talmud calls each person a world, where each person is a microcosm 
of the entire world. And so while you're getting rid of these ten bits of chametz, you're also getting rid of all of the evil, all of the negativity within yourself. Right? So you're working on a number of different levels. And someone, I was sharing this with someone, and they said to me, oh, so, so, so if you think of it like this, this meditation, basically, right? Where you're walking around your house with a candle, and you're gathering up the various bags from room to room, and you're just like purging yourself, and you're purging the world simultaneously. So I shared that with someone, and they said, oh, the, it's so symbolic and so beautiful. And I was like, well, yes, but it's not just symbolic. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this is just symbolic. This, we believe that we're actually doing it. We are actually cleaning the world with this action. It's not just, oh, what a beautiful idea, it's so poetic. It's more than that. We say that we're actually having an impact on creation itself. So you have to understand that. These, these mitzvahs actually impact the fabric of existence. Okay. Now the Gomorrah says the following. Listen. Listen to this. It could be, while you're searching around the house, that a mouse took some bread and put it inside its mouse hole. <laughs> right? Because what's, what's a mouse going to do? It's going to run into your kitchen grab some food, and then bring it back into its house. So, again, the mouse strikes again. Right? But isn't it fascinating that of all of the things that are trying to keep chametz alive in your house when you're trying to get rid of the chametz, who is the culprit? The mouse. So, on another level, now we're prepared for this thought, which otherwise would be an exceedingly abstract thought. What causes you to keep chametz in your heart? Forgetfulness. The act of forgetfulness. You want to get rid of forgetfulness. You know what the Kutzke Rebbe said? Something so strong. He says, God gave us forgetfulness so that we should forget about the world. And we use it to forget God? It's the ultimate chametz. It's the ultimate chametz. So now, there's an amazing halacha, which says, you have to light a candle, but not a torch. So I want to explain it in the following way. What's a torch? A torch is something with you know, several wicks, and it makes a much bigger flame. They say, don't use a torch. So if the whole idea of going around the house with a candle is to sort of like identify things that we need to fix within ourselves and everything like that, right? So, so that's what a candle is doing. If you have too much light, if you have too big a light, if you expose too much negativity you'll become overwhelmed and depressed. See, that's what the Yetzirah does. Reb Shlomo had an expression. He would say that some people go have a, a truth attack. Right? They have a truth attack and they want to tell you everything that's wrong with you. 
And he would deride people who would go on a truth attack. So, like, if you light a torch and you get too great a glimpse into where you're really holding, it can devastate you. So the idea is a candle is exactly on the level of what you can handle at that moment. So you deal with what you can handle at that moment and you take it from there. And you make small but real tangible steps. Okay. So now Reb Shlomo says that when you go through the house, you have to pay special attention to the corners of the house. Just as you go from room to room. And by the way, the um, modern uh, authorities say that you can substitute the... Well, you start with a candle, and then you can substitute with a flashlight. So that would be equal to a candle. So you have to look in the corners of the, ha- of the rooms. Space, pay special attention to the corners of the rooms. And he said the following, that most fights between people really aren't over anything that large. They're usually over something small, like crumbs in the corner of your heart. Right? So when you're looking from room to room, and you're looking in the corners for crumbs, you're trying to read your heart, the corners of your heart, of the little crumbs, the little complaints, the little accusations and disappointments that you have with other people. And just kind of get rid of that stuff, because that's oftentimes really the headquarters of what causes bigger fights. Now I want to share with you something that I heard from Rabbi Adin Steinsholz, which is, uh, which is very interesting. Really good. We have a halacha that if you keep on kneading dough, right, kneading it, you know, working dough, that it won't rise, that it's not going to become leavened, Okay? It's not going to become comet stick. But that if you just let dough sit there, then it rises. And in fact, one of the ways of making challah, of making bread, is that you have to give the, the, the dough time to rise. Right? But if you keep on working it, it won't rise. So remember, we're saying that the rising of the dough, right? Like if you see a piece of cake, most of that in there is air. Right? That's all pretense. That's all pretense. That's all falsehood. Right? That's not what we want for Pesach. After Pesach, it's another thing. But for Pesach, we just want simplicity and purity and honesty and truth. So if we keep on working the dough, it doesn't rise. So now listen to this. He says the following. He says, you know something in our lives? There's certain ideas, certain practices that entered into our hearts and for where we were at that period in our life, that was okay. But because on some level we just kind of left that there and we didn't think about it, that practice or that thought that we do, that, that level of observance, observance, that we accepted for ourselves at that point in our life may not be fit for us at this point in our life. In other words, there's certain practices that we put into our heart and we kind of just left it there and it rose like dough. It became chametz stick. 
because we left it alone and we stopped working really in that area of our life. And so one of the things that we have to do is we have to look again and we have to re-examine where we really are and what may have been acceptable for me a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, five years ago, maybe not right now. Maybe not right now. Maybe I've moved on in a positive way, but I haven't made the readjustment in terms of my life. I allowed that practice just to sit there and to become leavened, to become stick. So this is a time where we have to, again, meet our hearts, if you will, and work our hearts again, and to reevaluate where are we really holding right now. You know? A person can go up and down in terms of their observance, and sometimes that's necessary for where they are at that period in their life. And that may have been an okay move at that point in their life. But at this point in their life, maybe absolutely not. Maybe at this point, it's absolutely chametz. So everyone has to be honest with themselves. Because there's nothing more honest than matzah. There's nothing more honest than matzah. So, so now we take all the Chametz that we collected. And the next morning, everyone should know, people think that, a lot of people think that at the Seder, starting with the Seder, when Pesach comes in, that's when I stop eating bread. It's not true. You stop hours before that. Friday morning, you stop. Meaning, if whatever the, this year it's Friday night, the first Seder. So whatever night it is, it's about 10 a.m., you have to check the exact time. But 10 a.m. that day, that's when the, you're not allowed to eat it anymore. Okay? So, one of the greatest things, one of the holiest things of the entire year, and I, I beg you to take advantage of this spiritual opportunity, is you take your chametz, that stuff that you collected the night before, and any other chametz, and you go and you burn it. And... They have, uh, in larger Jewish communities, you'll have a central place where you can burn it. Here in Los Angeles, next to B'nai David, there's a big parking lot on Pico, and you'll have places where you can burn it, Friday morning. Okay? And you'll have, essentially, this cauldron of fire. I mean, it's so dramatic. And, and you take, if you still have your lulav for sukkahs, you take your lulav, you put it in first, you use that for kindling, which in itself is deep and beautiful, but for another time, because this lulav that you did so many mitzvahs on gets to do one more mitzvah. It gets to go out in flames, basically, to, to provide the kindling to burn the chametz, which, you know, Sukkot is the 15th of the month, Pesach is the 15th. There's so many correlations. But anyway, that aside, that aside. Um, and you get to literally... Burn up all the evil in yourself and in the world. You throw it into this cauldron, and I'm telling you, pour out your heart at that moment. As you're emptying it out into the flames, pour out your heart and pray to God that God should fix you, that He should fix the world, that He should fix your problems, that He should get rid of all the bad things. That is the time. That is the time. And it's, I'm telling you from my own life, it's a, you really feel it. 
It's really a great time of prayer. Um, well, there's a, you know, Torah is an ocean. It's, it's, it's impossible to, to, to cover everything. I'm going to tell you just one more thought with your permission, because it's my favorite thought on the Haggadah. And um, I'll just give it over to you. So, so this is something that, that I, I guess I came up with, but it's, you, you'll see, it's, it's, uh, it makes sense. So, so, one of the most special times and one of the narratives, it's sort of one of the hidden narratives, if you will, but one of the narratives of the entire Pesach Seder takes place when we take the middle matzah and we break it in half. And this is a great moment. And what you do is you break the middle matzah in half, and the bigger half of the matzah, you, that's going to become the afikomen. That gets hidden away. Now I want to show you how in this practice, you have the entire history of existence from before the world was created until Mashiach comes. Okay? And you'll see it's very clear. So, so before the world was created, we only had God. Only God existed. That's what's symbolized by the whole matzah. In other words, God was one and alone. Yom Echad, we say. Because it was just the oneness of God in the beginning. We break it in half. This correlates with the shattering of the vessels. This is a Kabbalistic idea that's, that's about the, how God created the world. So when existence comes into, into effect, there's the shattering of the vessels. So we break the matzah in half. We're reenacting the creation of the world. Then we take the bigger piece of matzah and we hide it away. Now everybody knows that when God created the world and he said, Vayahi or, let there be light, he wasn't talking about the light of the sun. He was talking about this exalted light. But then it said that it seemed like inappropriate that the, those who are wicked would enjoy this light. So God hid away this light. It's called the Or Haganus. So this is by far the majority of light that exists in creation. We live, so to speak, in a very dark place. This realm is very, very dark that we live in. It's beautiful in its own right, but compared to the ultimate light, it's very, very dark. So again, we break the matzah in half and we take the larger piece, right, Which, and we hide it away. This is exactly what God did. This is the Orhaga news. We hide it away. And now, who brings it back for us at the end of the Seder? And it becomes the Afikomen, which is the same as eating for us at this stage in, in history, the Korban Pesach. Our children bring it back for us. Right? So the Kojnitzer Rebbe says that, that this is our children are bringing back to us the light. The ultimate fixing, they're bringing it back for us. And, and now what do we do? We eat this. This is the Korban Besach. This stands for the third Besach Migdash. This stands for the perfection of the world. So you see how it starts off as before God created the world, where God is alone and He's one? Kaviyocho? The shattering of the vessels, the act of creation... We take the bigger piece, we hide it away, that's God hiding away the Orha Danus, the hiding of the light. 
And then the later generations, our children, find it and they get a big reward, right? Correlating with the reward that will happen for all of us. And they bring it back. And that's the Korban Besach. That's the third Besach Migdash. That's the ultimate fixing. So this is one of the things that we're enacting. The Seder is working on so many different levels. It's phenomenal. And now I'm really going to close with this. Seder means order. And it's one of the biggest jokes in all of Torah because it's the most disorderly meal you can possibly have. There's no order to this order, but it's called order. And so all the Rebbes are saying it's the same thing with our life. We look at our lives and it seems so out of order. We can't figure it out. It's so out of order. And yet this is the order. There is an order. You think there's no order. There is an order. There is an order. And one of the things that we can daven for during the Seder is, God, please show me the order in our life. Show me the order to your world so that I can see, I can have the eyes to really see your beauty and your perfection and help to bring it about. Okay. We should all be together in Yerushalayim, Erech Kodesh, this Pesach, this Pesach.